Alright, so welcome to uh, today's session, Security Deposits and Other Post-Eviction Civil Issues. Uh, we do have two of our most knowledgeable judges on the subject here today. Uh, Judge Steve Yuri is from the Highland Justice Court. Uh, in a previous life, he uh, also had a property management company. Uh, Judge Ken Chevrant is one of our newer judges, uh, but he's really accomplished and he owns among uh, other things like restaurants, he also owns a construction company. Uh, so we do have two really knowledgeable people about uh, today's session, so let's give them a hand. Well, let me have Judge, Judge Chevron turn around and tell you about the security deposits, what the maximums are and what it includes. Before, I just wanted to uh, talk about <coughs> my first dealings with a security deposit. And that was when I was 13 years old. I, my father was in the apartment business, and like all 13-year-olds, I was expected to work. And so I worked as, an apart as a weekend manager at an apartment at 27th Avenue in Indian School, which even in 1973 was um, a, dump? a question of, <laughs> yeah, it was a dump. Um, so at that time, I wasn't really knowledgeable about the whole I industry, but so they just plopped me down on the weekend every weekend to rent apartments. And so I remember the first security deposit I collected was $50. And that could tell you what the rent was at that time, because as you, you, may, you may or may not know yet, that you cannot make a security deposit more than one and a half amount of the rent. So that was my first and not last dealing with security deposit. Like uh, Judge Yuri, I do have, I'm, I am a landlord in both commercial and in residential. And so I deal with a lot of these issues um, in my own life. How I deal with it on the bench is somewhat different. Um, being in the legislature for 16 years, I was pretty involved in many of the laws that were created in the Landlord Tenant Act. But what we're gonna concentrate on here today is a security deposit. And so it's interesting because looking back, there's one Supreme Court case which I'm gonna talk about that deals with security deposit. And to my knowledge, nobody has ever changed any of the, or it, it never had any negative uh, actions afterwards. But a security, it was not called a security deposit originally, it was just called a security, which I thought was interesting. And what is a security deposit? It is a sum of money that the tenant gives the landlord in order to protect against damages that may occur from the tenant's actions in the residence. That's what it's supposed to be. But over time, and if you look at the statute we're going to talk about, and that is in statute 33-1321. The notes aren't going to be in there. And that is the statute that deals with security deposits. So I'm going to go over some of the statutes, what I think are important, part of the statute, which, what I think is important, and um, kind of give my interpretation. And I would hope that Judge Uri gives his interpretation if it differs from mine. So when they talk about a security deposit, um, they don't just talk about the security deposit in this part of the statute. They also talk about prepaid rent, which you don't hear a lot about now. But previously, a lot of apartment owners would ask for the first and last month's rent, as well as a security deposit. And what's important about that is because when you're calculating how much you can collect from an individual, um, it cannot be more than one and a half times the rent. So if you're collecting the first and last month's rent, you already have 
100% of the rent, so you get another 50%, so you could, if it's $1,000 rent, you can only collect, and if you do the first and last month, you can only collect $500 for that security deposit. And since you don't really see a lot of um, last month's rents anymore, what you do is you see a lot of other fees and other items that are put into uh, leases now. And the question is, I think that we were talking about yesterday, they call them fees to try to get around this prohibition of going to more than 150,000. 150%, sorry, thank you. So, and I'm not quite sure exactly, I, don't, I couldn't find anywhere where the courts have ruled on that at all, to see whether they're just skirting it or whether they're actually considered fees and not deposits and not putting away money for some future action. So what are the, so if you go to C of this act, it's what is the landlord's obligations? Every tenant or every landlord, when a person comes up to rent their, whether a house or apartment, the landlord has to give them a copy of the signed lease. That's a given. But they also have to give them a move-in form, which they're supposed to get, <clears throat> which allows them to specify, do a kind of a walkthrough of that apartment and say if there's any deficiencies or any problems in that apartment. And why that's so important is when they leave that apartment and that form will dictate if there was something previous, kind of like when you go and you rent a car and you walk around the car and you look to see if there's any bangs or anything that you don't want to be held liable for. It's kind of the same thing. And this is supposed to be a form which I haven't really seen, but it's supposed to be maybe just in, nobody's brought it to my attention in my apartments or in my uh, <coughs> rental units, but um, that is a form. The other thing that's important is that the landlord must have in writing and given to the tenant that the tenant has the ability, if they choose, to be there when they do the final walkthrough. But this has one caveat on, to, on it. And this must have been put in some circumstances in the last 20 years where you had a landlord who was fearful of their person um, because of a tenant. And so under the circumstances, if they file an eviction under a material and irreparable breach, that if they fear for their safety or well-being, they may exclude the tenant from being at the, uh, the final walkthrough. So section D of this section um, deals with the termination of tenancy. And one of the things I didn't realize is that the number one, number one on that on D is that a landlord may use the security deposit for unpaid rent. But again, there's like caveats with everything. And we'll see that in the, in the Supreme Court decision of what there is, it has to be done a certain way. Number two in there, which is kind of interesting, is it says, and the subject to the landlord's duty to mitigate all charges specified in the signed lease agreement. And I'm not quite sure what they mean by mitigating. It's, what they're saying is that in order to, to when they terminate their, their tenancy and they give the list of items that are deficient in the reason they're taking money out. They have to look at this area of law and they have to mitigate and not judge all charges specified in the signed lease agreement. So the way I read it is if they're going to take money out for something, it has to be spelled out at some capacity 
in the lease agreement. But there are areas, which we'll talk about in the statute, which pretty much covers everything. So I'm not quite sure what well, this part is. Mitigation of expenses could be the fact that the tenant had to vacate early. And if the landlord can re-rent the property in a timely manner, they're to mitigate the tenant's cost for non-payment of rent by re-renting the property. So that's one. The other second thing may be is that they may enter the property and discover that there may be some issues going on with water or some damage, and they're responsible to stop the damage. That doesn't mean they can't charge the tenant for it, but they should stop the damage. Water doesn't fix itself, it just gets worse. And so as a consequence, they, so it's the responsibility is now that you have the property, do whatever you can to get it fixed, fixed up, turned around, and re-rented. That's a good observation. The other thing that the landlord needs to do when they're looking at holding back rent is they need to state in that list the amount of damages. And so it needs to be pretty well documented so that there's no confusion by the tenant with why the reasons behind why the money's being taken out. And it's there for the tenant when they have non-compliance with what's called 33-1341. And they kind of state that in this part of the statute. So I'm gonna go over what's in 33-1341. And these are the areas where the landlord can take out items from the security deposit in order to pay for these items. So number one is they have to comply with all the obligations primarily imposed on the tenant by applicable provisions such as building codes, materially affecting the health and safety of the tenant's well-being. So the way I read that is a tenant can't just start putting up garbage everywhere where it's affecting the health and safety, not just of that tenant, but probably of the complex. So that if there's a breach in what considers standard habability, that the landlord can go back and go after them and take that out of the deposit. The other thing, the second one is in this part of the statute, it says that the tenant must keep the property clean and safe, but they said as permitted. So I'm not quite sure, I guess if you live in a place where it's relative, the safety is. If you have somebody who is dealing drugs there and it's in, I guess that is- In your district? No, many places, yes. And that it's all subjective. But that is one of the things that they have to do is keep the premise in a clean and safe environment. The three, and this is kind of interesting, it says they have to dispose of these items. They don't want to be kept around, ashes. And I'm not quite sure why ashes was put in there because at one time I don't think we've had coal heating. No, but you did have, you did have, what do they call them? They used to call them incinerators that they used to burn a lot of trash in rather than having to take it out to the corner. And some people would burn their incinerator and then it just simply fill up or they turn around and put it in the trash can afterwards and the trash can would melt. So you have to dispose of the ash properly. I guess they weren't talking about cigarettes. So then they go in to name a bunch of words which are pretty synonymous, rubbish, garbage, other waste. And 
ultimately what they're saying is you have to keep this again, and this is kind of reiterating what was above in a clean and safe environment. The next one is what the tenant must do also in the apartment. And that is they need to keep the, um, the plumbing fixtures, which could be anything, in the unit as clean as possible. And I assume this is talking about the dishwasher, the garbage disposal, the toilet, um, the sinks, the tub, the shower. Underneath the sink. You will see the most damage done is underneath a kitchen sink or a bathroom sink where it has leaked and has leaked onto the particle board and has deteriorated the particle board and then gone into mold and mildew underneath it, all because somebody never reported it or never called to have it repaired. And so this is why the burden is on the tenant to report those things. Now what we get into is kind of a, a tug of war, is that some landlords will turn around and say, well, you paid the first $25 or $50 of a repair. And so the tenant never calls for a repair because they don't want to pay the $50. And so when they move out, you've got a whole bushel load of properties that haven't, uh, things that haven't been fixed and should have been taken care of and then now has deteriorated the property. And we have very different, just, yes, Mary. Because of the, uh, the, the landlord did not maintain it, which I see a lot of properties like that. 
then I would not accept it because that is something that I think is a responsibility of the landlord. If it was something that was caused out of negligence or was caused purposely by the tenant, then that's a different issue. So it's, you know, I, I guess it depends on the judge or the pro temp or. Yeah. So the next one is number five. Yes. Quick question. Uh, I had a specific case where the landlord provided that the tenant spent the first hundred dollars on any repairs. To me, that sounded a little bit excessive. You know, to put on, on, on the tenant, and also I felt that, in a sense, you know, she was including the tenant, just like you said, to to to. To make that money, you know, make twenty-five, fifty dollars, you know, it's not a big deal. When you start the little things, they're, they're responsible for the first hundred dollars. Uh, the first hundred dollars, you call for an electrician, and you charge two hundred, you pay about fifty percent of it. You call, you know, several things. You, for the end of the year, you spend a lot of money on somebody else's property. Yeah. Something that you don't know. So the question that was asked was that an individual, or I guess a landlord, was asking for the first, the, to have something to fix, they would have to pay $100 first, or the first $100 of the um, cost of the repairs. Right, yes. Yeah. And, I, it I, up, and it was up to the tenant to call, whoever it was supposed to call, they would pay the first $100. And the problem actually got a little bit complicated because it, the, the, the woman said, if I call somebody, I'm responsible for the whole bill, and not the landlord. In any event, the issue is, is $100 excessive? I thought it was excessive to the burden of the... Again, I, I find that burdensome, and I find it a little... Because what you're doing is you're, you're making an individual less likely to address issues. Right. And so I'm not sure if that was a prudent move on the landlords, A. But B, especially depending on the situation, if I mean, they can be under subsidized housing, and to make that, to me, would be against HUD regulations. There's, I would look into it to find out. I almost had a hearing for that one. Okay. Thank you. Yes, sir. I think the landlord-tenant act says that they cannot uh, migrate that responsibility to the tenant. It, it, it has to do with like the drain drinking. Yeah. Now, if I broke something as a tenant, then that's my responsibility, and I can't expect the landlord to fix it. It's my responsibility. Yeah, I, I don't think a landlord can abrogate the responsibility. The, oh, the question was um, that uh, Mary said that in the landlord to that that the landlord cannot really abrogate the responsibilities, if I'm speaking correctly, um, of taking care of an issue that is really their responsibility. And unless it was caused, as I stated earlier, by a tenant in the, a negligence or purposely, that it should not be allowed. And so you felt that it was clear um, how the statute should be read. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> and, and I have to agree with you. I would say that if it's a responsibility, and I think that um, Judge Uri will talk about it later, about what percentage of your rent really should be going towards maintenance and upkeep in the future. So the next one, um, go on, is gonna be number five of this, um, this statute. And this is what I think is kind of a, it encompasses almost everything. It's saying that a tenant must reasonably use these items in a manner that does not 
cause um, distress, dis um, disrepair, or something. And it includes electrical, plumbing, sanitary, HVAC, which is, health, which is heating, um, air conditioning, appliances, elevator, and all other. I think all other is pretty much of a... I would say this section was written for students around the university. <laughs> yeah, so I think it pretty much says that if they're not using it responsibly, you can, you can charge it for it. The other one, which is eight, and this one is the one that I have um, the most issue with, and I'll, and I'll talk about why. It says to promptly notify the landlord in writing of any issue requiring repairs or maintenance as prescribed in 33-1324. I now will accept somebody who has written an email and or um, a text. I know that with, with Judge Uri, he wants to see a reply. To me, if, the, if in the contract it says that to notify um, the landlord, this is the email to use, or this is a phone, not so much a phone number because you don't know if it's a landline or a, um, but if it's, this is the place, or this is the email address you're supposed to use to notify them, then I think it's you know similar to pasting uh, something on the door when you have to do a, a, a mail and drop, a mail and paste, that I would accept that if they, if they could show me that the email that to the correct address, and I would then ask the landlord or the representative, is this the address that is on the, you know, that is used by the complex? With the text message, it's a little more problematic. You do want to see that there's some kind of communication to know that that was given, that they did accept it, or did receive it, or did see it. This is where it comes back to an issue of notice versus knowledge. And had my legislation gotten through, I made, it, I made it so that if the tenant identified this is my personal email and I can have messages sent here, then that would serve as notice. Now what happens if the tenant knows about it or a landlord knows about it, then they have knowledge and knowledge supersedes notice. You don't need to be told that the house is burning down. You can see it. You have probably been called by the neighbors and you're over the property. And so this is where it comes back to, I ask for an acknowledgement because my wife gets on my cell phone, my kids get on my cell phone, I don't know what they've answered or who they talk to, and so yeah, and so as a consequence, I don't, I don't know what I've been committed to. And so, and you don't have any way of knowing that either, unless the person acknowledges it back. So it's a kind of a gray area, so be careful. Yeah. In one of the issues I have is what I see a lot in my with a lot of my um, tenants who are in a situation where there's something that has occurred um, in their apartment, whether it was caused by rain, whether it was caused by a broken pipe or whatever, and they communicated with the landlord about this, and the landlord continues not the landlord, but the manager, probably usually a manager, is communicating back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The lawyers will say, well, but they didn't give us a written notice. And that is what the statute says. So what I would like to see one day is that they would tell the tenant, um, we cannot accept this oral, this oral conversation is not, it needs to be written. Um, and that would be good if all the landlords would do that. That would just be much more helpful and to make sure that, um, because most tenants, you tell them to read the Landlord Tenant Act and it's something that's just abstract to them. You tell most legislators to read it and they wouldn't know what was in it. So, and they wrote it. 
So, yes, yeah, so we can say we're both former legislators. So the next one um, is to be a very important part of this is the landlord. This is, I look under the landlord's obligation. In order to take out any of the money from the deposit, from the security deposit, a landlord must, this is a must, give to the tenant within 14 days an itemized list of what was taken out and why. 14 court days or business days, not calendar days. Say it in the microphone. The landlord has 14 court or business days to account for the security deposit, and you don't start counting until the day after they receive the keys. Too many people start counting on the day that they came by at 5, 4.55, dropped off the keys, and they say, okay, that's day one. No, it's not. It's tomorrow is when it starts. You count 14 court days, and it's the 15th day that they can file. Yes? The statute has changed. It says that the, that the tenant must demand that 14-day notice. Okay, and we can get to the issue of demand, but, and, and where it comes back to is what the legislature was looking at is, I'm going to come in, I'm going to say, I'm out of the property, here's my keys, here's my forwarding address, I want my security deposit returned to me. That is the whole three steps of demand. If I had somebody's keys that were taped to a brick and it came through my front window, that would tell me they are out. You know, I, I don't need to have a written notice, and I would accept that as, as being notice that they are out. That's the statutory. This is where the attorneys come back to when they didn't give us a written notice, they didn't make demand for it, they did they dropped off the keys. Well, so you know that they're out. Yes. But we're looking at small claims because they're asking for the deposit. So if they happen to leave the key inside the apartment, landlord doesn't know, and they haven't had any more communication, what direction are you giving us as hearing officers? How do, do we deal with that notice? Okay, the question is, is that if the tenant has left the keys in the property, is not communicating to the landlord, what do we, how do we handle that? Had my other piece of legislation gone through that I was trying to get done, I made it so that if a tenant notified the landlord that they were out of the property, the landlord could come by the day after and open the door to see if they had vacated. I mean, you can look through the windows or whatever. They fought me so hard on that, and someone turned around and said, this means that you can walk into my house when I am naked and in the shower and I bit my tongue on this, but I was thinking, how else would you be in the shower? So, <laughs> so anyways, and it's because we don't use the abandonment clause in the tenant landlord because it's fraught with risk. And if you change the locks on it, then what happens, you may have unlawful ouster, wrongful termination, you didn't get the notice, and so everybody goes through the eviction process, and there are hundreds of these each month because they left the keys on the counter. That's why when I showed you the letter of termination, you bring the keys back. So. Yeah, and I think one of the other issues that was changed in statute, I don't know if it was this year or last year, but before it was unlimited amount of time that a tenant could go back and ask, you know, ask for it. Now they have 60 days to not just ask for it, but to dispute it. Okay, and so one of the interesting things about it is 
hopefully most landlords, if it's, if, if it's um, amiable separation, that they will ask for a forwarding, forwarding address, and they mostly do. If they do not have that, um, the landlord's able to take their last known residence, which obviously would be the dwelling that they are renting, and then send a, a first-class letter. Which really causes some confusion is when a parent is renting to a child and they have a room and, and they're now sending the security deposit accounting, we call it SOTA, security deposit disposition, to the last known address, which is the parent's address, you know, where's it gonna go? Can I ask you some questions? You may. Okay. Going back to a pet fee or pet charge, going back to a, a cleaning, redecorating fee, are those considered part of the one and a half times the rent as a fully refundable security deposit? I would look at a pet deposit if it is considered not, um, it depends on how it's worded, but if it says that it is not um, refundable, then I would not consider it part of it. Okay. Well, here's the challenge that you have, is if it says it's not refundable, then it must, some part must be refundable. So the industry as a whole has stayed away from the word deposit of any kind, non-refundable deposit. So they have fees or charges. However, when it comes time to account for the security deposit, it's assuming that there's going to be pet damage. It assumes that there's going to be cleaning and redecorating after the person has gone. In my court, that is not free money. I build that in there. So we have $1,500 in security deposit, fully refundable. We have $250 in cleaning and redecorating, $250 in pet fee. I now have a $2,000 security deposit, 500 of which is not refundable charges. Now, they may not get to $250 in damages for a pet. I'd like to see that. They may not get to $250 in cleaning and redecorating. That's fine. They, they have, that's what they agree to. But then you don't start dipping into the one and a half times the rent as a refundable security deposit until you have exhausted the other two. That's what I do in my court. It's not free money. And you just go on that. And this is where I have issue with, because the statute says that any prepaid money so if you're prepaying money for a future action, is that count? Even if they call it something else. I don't, there's not been, I didn't find, I couldn't find any lawsuits on this yet or any determination by the court. So it'll be interesting if anybody ever takes it to court. So how much of the fee or deposit should we take into account that it's just the cost of the landlord doing business? And I think that we're gonna talk about that in a, in a, in a little yeah. while about what is the, you know, what are the expectations of a landlord for usage of that place because there's gonna be wear and tear that's just normal. So one of the issues, and this is, this is important also for the tenant, is if a landlord does not comply with the law, and you'll see there's a court case I'm gonna talk about, that tenant has the ability to be awarded twice the damages of the deposit that was withheld or the amount that was wrongfully withheld. Um, as, and before you came in, I asked the question, what does it mean to be, what's the definition of wrongfully withheld? What does it mean to be wrongfully withheld? And it's not, it's used in statute, but it's not defined in the tenant landlord. You know how they always have the list of words in the beginning of what they mean? 
Well, they don't have wrongfully withheld in that definition of word, so this is how we're using this word. Yes? In the, when we get a small claim for the deposit, they're claiming that they did not get the uh, itemized statement, and that's why they want double the amount. And, that, and the question is, is that in small claims, they're saying they did not get the itemization of the security deposit. Therefore, they want to have double that as penalties against the, the, the landlord who did not return it. And depending on how much time has gone between when, if, if they never accounted for it and they should have, yes, they are probably entitled to it. But if they're a day or two late, yeah. And this is an issue that was brought up in the case I'm going to talk about in Schaefer versus Murphy. It was a 1982 decision that went all the way to the Supreme Court and was upheld. They upheld the appellate um, decision. But it does talk about that, that situation. And one of the, the last things, that just kind of get over this area, is that in it, one of the things that states is that the landlord has 14 days, the tenant has 60 days, otherwise it then you know, they can no longer go after that, that sum of money. But it doesn't preclude any other issues or any other issues that may arise that aren't being dealt with the security deposit that they can go after still in uh, civil court. Okay, great. Uh, can you Sign it and pay the five hundred dollars on the pet 
pet fees, they can't move in. Well, again, like I'm saying, we're done, there's no meeting of the mind. They're not there yet. Just because a lease is tight and real pretty does not mean that you cannot modify it. There's nothing that says you can't strike through it. Okay. And so you're still negotiating. Yeah, it's not that I'm going to accept anything in the lease that's, that they put in there. Um, but I think there's reasonable expectations that having an animal in the rental unit is going to cause damage. I know that uh, personally, it's always caused damage. So that is, a, so that I don't think is an unreasonable ask. In a, but if somebody says, you know, if you have a child, a baby, you have to do $500. Obviously, that would be unconscionable and illegal. So we would not accept that. Yes, I think an animal I would. Did I finish my thought process? I never finish my thought processes. It always holds me accountable. <laughs> so, and about the security guard, we will get into that because there's other things that landlords tend to charge for that they cannot charge for. So. And so the last item of um, this, uh, the, the statute is that the landlord can use those, I assume at some point this was changed, a landlord can use those deposits for other uses as long as that money is available when the tenant leaves the, the premise. And it has to be, it, it, I think it has to be stated, the way I read the statute, it has to be stated in the lease that they're going to be using it for other things on the property. It's not that they can go out and use the money to go gambling over at the casino, but ultimately, if it's something that is pertaining to the to the, um, the building or the maintenance or whatever, they are able to use it as long as it's available. Now, now let me give a caveat to that. If the landlord is the owner, then they can turn around and use the funds. If the landlord is a property manager and an no. agent, they <laughs> cannot use the funds. They have to put it into an escrow account. And many a hand has been slapped because their owner told them to make some repairs. They didn't have enough money. They dipped into the tenant security deposit. That's not the owner's money at that point. In fact, if the owner takes the money and receives it to themselves, it's declared as income on their income tax. And then when they pay it back or account for it and they return everything, then it becomes an expense. Yes. You're talking about the deposit at the beginning, and I'm a landlord, and I have to go fix something, and I take it from that escrow. If I, as a landlord, have a repair, and I own the property, I can take those funds, because it's going to become income to me, and use it for repairs and maintenance. However, when they vacate the property, I return it back, or account for it. A property manager as agents cannot do that. They have to put it into an escrow account. If I remember right, back in the 70s, you could have a segregated account. You, would, you had to have a segregated account for this money. And so I assume they changed it to the... Does. So that's pretty much yeah. So the one thing, we're going to go very quickly over this. This was the only, um, only case that I found dealing with uh, deposits security deposits in Arizona and it did go up the way Supreme Court. It was Schaefer versus Murphy and it was a 1982 decision. So it was a while ago and it's kind of interesting because you look at the decision and you look at the statute now and so some of the references that they use are obsolete. obsolete. But I'll give you kind of a short synopsis. What it was is a, um, a couple 
uh, left, the, left their apartments, they moved out, uh, they didn't pay the month of rent. The landlord didn't return the deposit. So he sued for to get back the money or the rent that had not been paid. They did a counterclaim saying, hey, you know, he, you know, didn't fix things he was supposed to do. He didn't, um, he, he was kind of, he went against us just because we filed this claim. That's why he evicted us. Um, and so there's a couple other issues. And so ultimately what happened is it went up to Supreme Court. The first one was the Superior Court. And they came up with that the landlord got the unpaid rent. They gave him that. With the tenant, they moved, they gave them the return of the deposit. They, they made him do the return of the deposit, and then they gave them, because he didn't write out what exactly he was taking it out for, he just didn't give it to them. And he tried to bring up the argument that when he did the um, case against them for unpaid rent, that in itself was notification. But the court ruled, no, that's not. You have to have um, written notice to the tenant that itemizes exactly why you kept the rent out. The second thing is they ruled in favor of the tenant for it, not being, for it being inhabitable. And the only issue that was uninhabitable, and they gave the person 250 bucks, which at that time the rent was I think 600, is that one of the toilets had not been fixed. And they said even though it was a two bathroom, I think maybe a two bedroom, two bath unit, not having an operable toilet in itself makes that unit uninhabitable which I thought was very interesting. I never would have assumed that. Um, the Superior Court also said that it was an unlawful un, um, ouster, that, you know, that it was retribution for them filing the claim. So it goes up to the Superior, the Superior, Court, the Superior Court, and there was a Justice Hayes who wrote the opinion on that. And he affirmed everything except for the unlawful ouster. And he said that just because they filed, you know, um, an action to reclaim the the um, unpaid rent, that in itself is not, you know, an unlawful ouster, and that's not retribution. So those were the, uh, the, the things. So the interesting things that came out of it is that, as I stated before, he was not able, he had to pay double the damages because he did not get them an itemized list of items. The landlord, was cited for uninhabitable just because one of the toilets was not working. And how many toilets were There were two. And he said that they, there was a breach of the statutory duty to maintain the premise in a fit and habitable condition. And so they awarded damage for that. And they said that, and then I said there's no retaliation against it. So it's kind of an interesting um, case to read. Again, it's quite old, 1982. And when you were talking about different parts of the statute, I had to go back and re-look at the numbers because they didn't correspond to what was done so many years ago. But I'm going to turn it over now to uh, Judge Uri so he can talk about some of the other important things as what is permissible and not permissible. Let me uh, touch on one, go back and touch on a couple of things and then we'll move forward. When the tenant comes in to do a, make their demand, drop off their keys, give their forwarding address, at that time, they can schedule a time to do a walkthrough. Unless it's the habit, or unless they stipulate it to it, it usually is done during business hours during the week. It doesn't have to be done at 9 o'clock at night, 
on a, on a Sunday because, you know, you can't see. And so as a consequence, they can turn around, they have the right, the landlord should, say, okay, we will be at that property at this time, and we will conduct a move-out inspection. You are welcome to be there, but you're not required to be there. Notice the difference. Because people says, well, they did the walkthrough without me. Well, did you know when they were doing the walkthrough? Yes. Then why weren't you there? So it's not a mandatory, you have to sign off on this. The second thing is, is that personal property after a lease termination, if they vacate the property and they left stuff behind, you have the right, and it's more than just the normal stuff. You have, you turn around and tell the tenant, you got five days to get back here and get this stuff out of here. Otherwise, in 14 days, I'm going to turn around and get rid of the stuff myself, and you're either going to have it hauled to the dump, or I'm going to make a charitable donation to one of the St. Vincent de Paul early collections, or I'm going to turn around and sell it and use it to offset any of the expenses that you've incurred. And you can do that within 14 days. That law was changed last year. So if they leave it behind, and that's a normal termination, that's a normal leaving it, uh, excuse me, termination, termination is the five days, and eviction is the 14 days. If they don't come back and don't get the stuff, and they just have left it behind, you have the right to turn around and sell it. I don't want their stuff anyway. Yeah. Yeah, at that point, I had one where a woman in one of my uh, units just disappeared. She all of a sudden was there, and one day she wasn't, and she she always paid rent um, late, but she was gone one month and then the next month. So I had to go through the eviction, and she left everything. So it was really kind of worried me, because I thought maybe something had happened to her. She was from the Philippines. But she left thousands and thousands of dollars worth of dressing and clothing there. And at the time, I had to store it for 30 days before I was able to get rid of it um, and donate it to charity. But it does happen. Exactly. Now, a county, a normal wear and tear, understand that, oh, you want to question? I'm sorry, that's okay. With respect to the walkthrough, the final walkthrough, the tenant has demanded that to ask for Does he not? The tenant has what? Has to ask for the walkthrough. The no. tenant does not have to ask for the walkthrough. They can turn around and what the landlord should be doing is scheduling the walkthrough with the tenant during their office hours or normal procedures. If they do it on weekends, and they agree to it, then they can do it on a weekend. What happens if the tenant goes to the walkthrough, and uh, the, the uh, I'm sorry, the landlord goes to the walkthrough, and the tenant says, nobody have told me about it? Well, that's why when they, this is why they drop off the keys. This is why they make demand. This is why they give their address, and they give it to the landlord or the property manager. And the property manager should be saying that we're going to conduct a walkthrough on Tuesday at 2.30 in the afternoon. Be there. Okay, so it was the, the, the and I'm sorry to be obstinate, but I'm sorry to be in my mind anyhow. So the tenant does not have to ask to, to, to be present to walk through, but he has to be given the opportunity to be there. Yes, should, should be notified. Okay, gotcha. Thank you. Yeah. Here's the reason why you all came here today. Real estate is a wasting asset. And landlords write off the cost of the home or the cost of the property over a 27 and a half year period. They call this, they call this depreciation, a non-cash expense. 
So the IRS figures it's going to wear out. Now I have gotten in there, if you look down there a little bit farther, you will see life expectancy in there. From my experience as a property manager of 32 years, I have not had any garbage disposals last longer than five years. Flat paint. It's easier to spray on flat paint than it is to spray, than to spray on or roll on a semi-gloss or a deck of glow. And so as a consequence, it's going to last two tenants or three years, whichever comes first because you can't wash it. So when you have a brand new home and those kids are running around and they're wrapping their fingers around as they go blitzing around in the Indy 500 in the center of the house or whatever, and they leave their fingerprints on the wall, it's not gonna come off. The paint's gonna come off before the fingerprints do. And so it's gonna be repainted within three years. Sheetrock should be lifetime. I'll tell you, in university housing, it is not. <laughs> uh, carpet. Typically, no one puts in good carpet because somebody always spells red wine on it or some red food coloring and you've now ruined it. It will be six to 10 years. I had a property that was 30 years old. It had the original carpet in it. It was wool. It would clean up wonderfully after one. The only trouble was it was purple. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, that was a hard sell. Anyways, uh, dishwasher. Uh, five, to, uh, five to eight years, stove, 20 years, refrigerator, 15 years, washer, 10 years, dryer, 10 years, air conditioner, 20 years if the filter is changed, seven years if it's not. Yes? Um, many air conditioning firms would disagree with you on the 20 years. Uh, of course they would. use 11. And that's fine. I said seven. And here's how you can tell if a landlord brings you pictures of the ceiling fan blades and they have coated across the edge with grit and grime, the tenant, I don't care what the filter looks like inside the air intake, did not change it. And now they're going to have to go for an acid wash, which is $600. And they have probably destroyed the cooling fins. And so it will last seven years. My house? My air conditioners are on 20 years. Yeah. And I assume they're saying that because they want to sell a new unit. Yeah. That's, you know, like anything. I mean, most of them, I would say, being in the business um, is 10 to 15 years. Is, I mean, what you're going to have is obviously they become more efficient over time, but they usually should run 10 to 15 years. Well, the reason I say that is because 20 years later, you can't even find parts or filters, or and so what you're saying is that the air conditioning companies are planning on planned obsolescence. That you're not going to be able to get the parts anymore. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a valid argument. But again, like I said, in a rental property, if it lasts more than seven years, you're doing good. Moving on, copper piping. Just real quick, on that uh, dirty filters, fans, and stuff, is not part of the responsibility for the landlord to do a periodic walkthrough of the property monthly, quarterly, and possibly spot them remedy? The question is, is should not a landlord do a periodic walkthrough and be able to spot that and identify that? Yes, they can, and yes, they should. The problem is, is if you turn around and tell a tenant, you need to clean this up, and they don't, what's the landlord's option? 
breach of contract eviction. So it's either you go after them with a rolled up newspaper or a sledgehammer, but there's nothing in between. And most people just simply tolerate it and put up with it until they vacate the property and then you simply charge them. Yeah, but have you ever seen have you ever seen anybody go after somebody for HVA for air conditioning? I mean, I, I think it'd be impossible because you have so many different tenants have used it to determine which one caused it to go out earlier. That's just part of the wear and tear. What, what I've seen is they try to charge them for like duct cleaning. There's dust in there from when they built it, and so you know they, they try to sell you on that cleaning the duct work and everything else like this. What you're looking for, and this is just for your knowledge only because you're attending here today, is that when the air going in the intake measures the temperature, it should be 19 degrees colder coming out the vent. That's what they call a split. And if it's got 19 degrees difference between intake and output, your unit's working well. And that's Less than that would not be working well. If that's correct, less than that would mean you may need to have an acid wash. You may need to have the technician climb in there and clean the fins on the coils. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, moving on, uh, drip sprinkler line, the, pl the plastic PVC that's in the ground, it lasts 10 years. It rots out, it breaks up. There's just no two ways around it. Now, driving a, a lawnmower over the sprinkler head and they break it, that's a different story. That is probably tenant related. Uh, drip system, eight to ten years, those lines start to plug up, bugs climb in there every year. Landscape plastic, it depends on how thick the material is over the top of the plastic and how thick the plastic is. It will last three years, five years, ten years. If you got a pet back there, it will dig it up. And so that's just kind of, a, once again, a judgment call. What did it look like when they moved in? How deep was it? How thick was it? What does it look like now? Has it been ground down and into the in, and ground into the ground into the into the uh, subsurface? Wooden fences. It lasts ten years, folks, and it falls over. Uh, vapor barrier. You know, that's the felt paper, pepper paper, the, the felt paper put down under the roof tile or the shingles. It will last fifteen to twenty years, and it will cook. And it, and it will turn around and it will be breaking apart and falling apart and that folks is what keeps the rain from coming into the house it's not the shingles the shingles are balanced they hold the roof down in a storm it's the felt paper that keeps it from having a leak uh, floor tiles should be lifetime now you will see this you will see the owner submit invoices for work done the, land, the owner, if they're doing the work, cannot charge for labor. They can charge for materials. They can charge for whatever, you know, whatever it is that takes it to fix it back up, but they cannot charge for their own labor. Even an attorney representing themselves at a trial cannot charge attorney fees. It's prohibited. And I have seen it where they're charging their normal shop time for where they get paid, $25, $35, $50 an hour. Uh-uh, doesn't work that way. Now let me give you another uh, rule of thumb that I have found both personally and professionally. A landlord or owner would put 10% of the annual rent into the property for maintenance and repairs. So if they brought a brand new house, it's under warranty. They're not gonna spend anything for the first year, so they now are gonna catch up next year because it's now year number two and they should be putting in 
And if they don't, because the mechanics and everything else is still under warranty, not the labor, then they will turn around and have 20%. I had a landlord had a case come before me, and she had bought the house brand new, lived in it for six months, had flat paint, rented to her best friend. She lived there for 10 years. At 10 years, a landlord will take a full year's rent to put into the property to fix it up. You're going to change out carpet. You're going to repaint walls. You're going to be looking at shingles for damage. You're going to be looking at dishwashers having been replaced, a garbage disposal having been replaced two or three times. I asked the plaintiff, who was the landlord, I said, what repairs did you do to the property? And she said, at eight years, we changed out the hot water heater. So I look down my list here and I go, oh yeah, there it is, eight years. You're right on schedule. What else did you do? We sent out a technician to service the air conditioning unit. Okay, what else did you do? Nothing. You got away like a bandit. <coughs> but she was asking for it, and she was very kind because this was her friend. She was asking for $15,800 in repairs and maintenance over a 10-year period because the house wasn't to her standards, and she was charging her labor onto it. And I turned around and said, well, based upon this number here, 10% per year, 10, year 10, that's where you're at, 10 and a half years, times $1,300 a month, times 12. Oh, look at that. It comes out to be more than $5,000, $15,000. That's exactly what you're asking for. You have had a free ride. She was not happy with me. And she was the only one that walked out of my courtroom and as she was going through the vestibule said, F you judge. And I looked at the time and said, it's 4.45. I really don't want to do a contempt right now. <laughs> Let's just go home. <laughs> so that's next to unpaid rent, the security deposit accounting is the most how should I say, conflicting, contentious of everything. Yes? You have listed anything about sinks. About sinks? Yeah, yeah like bathrooms, the bathroom, you know. So, uh, it, it, bathrooms and sinks depends on two things. Do they smoke and do they use a hair curl, a hair iron? Both of those will leave burn marks on the countertops. If that happens, folks, guess what? You just bought yourself a brand new countertop because it can't be sanded out, it can't be done anything. And I don't know why people smoke and, and put their cigarette on there anyway. Why not go get a tray, ashtray, or something like that? So yeah, but uh, I countertop if it's if it's kind of marble should be lifetime. Bathtubs. Bathtubs. What will happen is that they will deteriorate. We we have hard water here in case anybody hasn't noticed, and that's a new discovery to you. Uh, and so you will have it so you get to the point where you cannot clean the tub. And at that time, I, as an owner, will resurface the tub and redo the surround and everything else. That's my expense. Because if I don't, if a property deteriorates, I get a lesser quality tenant into the property. They're going to say, oh, this guy treats this like crap. I'll be comfortable here because I don't have to do anything. And so by maintaining the property, you maintain the quality of the tenant as well. Other questions? Susan. Do you actually, I, I understand 100% of the rent in 10 years for a long tenant wants 
No, I, I think what he's saying is that over a long-term tenant, you assume that there's going to be wear and tear that's natural. That that, and again, when I'm looking at, and I don't do a lot, of, I don't do very many small claims, but if it goes to regular civil, it cause damage. If it was just that, you know, it was just part of living there, and the carpet, you know, started wearing, that's wearing. I assume that once every time one of my tenant moves out, I'm going to repaint. I just assume that I put that in to the rent, uh, and there's other things. You know, if an ATVAC goes out, a dishwasher, or a washing machine, unless I think that maybe something has done, they've done something to cause it to be damaged, I will replace it automatically. The, the big one is is that they're trying to help the landlord and they're using a crescent wrench on the toilet <laughs> and they hit the toilet just ever so slightly and now they have cracked and broken the toilet. And I'll tell you, trying to find a toilet that will fit the hole and the distance from the wall is a nightmare because they're all old toilets, there's nothing new anymore. And so as a consequence, that becomes, you know, and you feel sorry for them, you know, I appreciate you trying to help, but guess what, it didn't. See, what we're trying to do is, a, as a landlord, they should be trying to avoid an adversarial relationship because they can do so much damage to the property that that landlord will never recover the damages. Never. I, I as a businessman, and I, as a, a property owner, have never chased a tenant for damages. Just not worth it. It's faster for me to clean it up, fix up, turn around, and get it re-rented. I sleep at night. And, and ultimately, you said I should look at that credit report better. <laughs> so that's what that means. <laughs> Why you go through some of the questions on page two? Okay. On here, uh, <clears throat> we've already talked about I left it cleaner than when I moved in. This is page two on here. And also back there is also the cleaning instructions we used to give to our tenants uh, when they, we attached it to the termination letter, we put in the cleaning instructions. The landlord should not have charged so much to clean the unit. What would be your response to that as a hearing officer or as a pro tem? The question is, the landlord should not have charged so much for the, to clean the unit or in, in opposite, I could have cleaned it for less. So the question becomes is, why didn't you? And as it comes back to, once again, did the landlord or property manager give the tenant cleaning instructions? This is what it's going to be cleaned to. Because if you don't do it, I'm gonna send it to the crew and they're gonna clean it to that standard. So it's either your time or your money. And at the end of the cleaning instructions, I have a list of what the vendor trades are and what they charge. So they know up front, this is what it's going to be per hour. Uh, how do you handle cleaning and redecorating or pet fee? Okay. Go ahead. If, if the landlord does not give any instructions, the tenant goes ahead and cleans it, then that's the standard. That's correct. If my wife tells the kids when they're younger, go clean your room, and they put everything in the closet or under the bed, 
and everything's off the floor. And she said, I've cleaned my room. Unless she gave instructions to hang everything up and put it away, that's clean. Yes? Yes, you should be looking at it, and again, the burden is on the landlord if they deducted funds to clean it. They should turn around and say, we gave them these instructions to clean this property this way, and they didn't follow them. But they don't give instructions as thorough as you do, and so what we did is, yes, they took it out of my deposit, and I cleaned it, and I cleaned it, and to, their, to the tenant's satisfaction, but again, we see these pictures, and we And that's your responsibility as a trier of fact, exactly right. I can say I have a new car, but when you go out and look at it, it may not be. So, other questions, let's see. Do you accept emails notice of termination? Some judges will and some judges don't. And if you just have to determine that, the question becomes is, how do you know they got notice? Yes? Well, that, you know, And I think, again, I disagree with that because if the if on the which I see a lot of these leases, it gives an email address to communicate with them. I look at that just as if you're sending a letter to somebody. That is the address for you to communicate with them. And if they didn't, if the landlord did not take the time time to read those emails, that is up to that individual. So I will accept it without getting a reply because a lot of times you have a manager who's supposed to, and she was, oh, okay, he's leaving, whatever. And she saw it, but she didn't reply. So I won't put that burden on the tenants. It's the same concept when you mail something, we don't know if we get it. Yeah, that's what I look at it also. And I think that most millennials, that's all they use, is emails. And I have situations where I have tenants who are functionally illiterate, and so they don't have email, they don't have text, they couldn't read the, the, the uh, landlord tenant act. Or even read the, and we didn't even know that until after the fact. And so you know, then what do you do? You, so you have a lot of you know areas that are very gray. But when it comes to emails, I will accept it.
you know, and so as a consequence, and so I'm asking these, and this is what the questions are that you should be asking in your mind, is what is the evidence that supports the landlord's deductions from the security deposit? Did they account for the pet fee? Did they account for the cleaning and redecorating fee before they started dipping into the security deposit? Yeah, I think it puts both of us in an interesting position because as somebody who works with construction, I can look at the pictures that have been brought in. I can ascertain, is this recent damage or is this something that's been going on for a long time? And especially in the older units we have in Central Phoenix, you have a lot of situations where they have not been maintained. And then they're trying to put it on this tenant. And it's, just, you know, it's like, no, I can see that the, the, those cabinets have dry rot. That dry rot does not happen you know, overnight. It, it's a long, drawn-out process. And that tenant's only been there for a week. That wasn't caused by that tenant. The last thing I'll touch on is attorney fees in regular sewer. Punitive damages. Punitive damages. Let's see. What number does a judge officer use, a judicial officer use, to calculate punitive damages? Not allowed in small claims. Not allowed in small claims. That's right. So, but so what about regular civil? The maximum is two, about yeah, two times what was wrongfully withheld. And then it goes back to you as a trier of fact had to determine was that wrongfully withheld or is there just a difference of opinion as to how much it should have been. And so you have to determine that. And if you find it like my, my trial that came before me, the guy had been chasing him for two years from New York to California to Arizona, and he still hadn't accounted for the security deposit, you bet I'm going to give him up the two times. Yes? Uh, I want to talk about the um, demand, um, oh, no, no, for the tenant, the 60 days that the tenant does not, cannot go after the landlord on the new statute. Right. It is a change. Okay. So as hearing officers, if a case comes before us and it is over the 60 days and they filed a small claim against the landlord, are we dismissing it? Because they didn't, what does it say? It says, R repeat the question. Okay, so what you're saying is, is that if you in a small claims case have somebody come in and they have filed a complaint against the owner and it's now passed and filing a complaint past 60 days of when there was accounting for the security deposit. So in my mind, it's 14 court days plus 60 days after that. That's so I'm looking at like, and 14 days usually turns out to be about 21 days. So you're talking 81 days and it's now past that point, do we dismiss it? I think that's a, a, an issue for the trier of fact. You need to look at it and say, did, was it sent in a timely manner? Well, because the statute does say, Any further claims of the tenant are made. 
True, but the first thing you had to do is determine whether it, the list was actually sent before you can even determine Correct. whether, so the burden, you know, you need to establish that first and make sure that you do see, find out how the landlord sent it and to where, um, just to, before you can even talk about the 60 days, because it probably, maybe they didn't think about it and all of a sudden they realized, hey, where's my money? But hopefully they, they get a change of address for their less. A lot of people don't, but yeah. Chad Russell? Yeah. I think what that's talking about is they have 60 days to dispute was the term I heard. That's not 60 days to file a lawsuit. That's 60 days to say, I disagree with what you've done. If you don't disagree, then you've lost your opportunity to file the lawsuit that's going to be the statute of limitations questions on whatever occurred. And so that's going to be, those are different counting periods. That's a very good point. That, that's for the parties, that's for the parties <laughs> to have a damage, okay? So repeat that. Then after the damage is established, you get someone to file the lawsuit. So, so I think that, So I think once you have to, it, it is correct. The statute says 60 days to dis, dispute what was written on the list, not filed. Not filed. So. On regular civil, because some of you may have be in locations that don't have high security deposits or high rents or whatever. Uh, and they end up going into regular civil attorney fees. What do you allow as attorney fees on a security deposit dispute? For us, it's small claims. It's for you, it's small claims. And so it shouldn't, shouldn't be anybody there that, that is there. In, in my court, I have seen where they have turned around and charged $17,000 for a $3,000 security deposit. And when I started reading their China doll, I started realizing, research the Tenant Landlord Act. <laughs> you know, I says, no, they're not paying for your education. They should be buying your expertise, and there it is an ethics standard that says, if you don't know what you're doing in that area of the law, you should refer your client to somebody who does know what they're doing. And you can either ride shotgun and learn from them or turn your client over to them. Yeah, when it, when it comes to attorney's fees, I really look at that China doll. And I look at what the standard time period should take to do certain things. And you really can't dispute what they're, what they're charging per hour because that is the rate. But you can dispute what time they took. 
I mean, if they're taking, if, in order to look at a, de, a, a judgment or create a, a motion for default judgment, they put three hours. That's ridiculous. I mean, it should never take three hours. It's mostly standard verbiage that they're using boilerplate. Most information they're getting, if it's a credit card, they're getting from the credit card company, or so that's not three hours. And they probably had a instead of charging four seventy-five, they may have actually had a. a one of their associates, or even a, what's that? Uh, yeah, yeah. The other thing that I look at is that I turn around and I ask the landlord, what charges did you assess yourself for cleanup and fix up and turn around? What is normal wear and tear that is your responsibility and how much did you charge the tenant and how much did you charge yourself? Because if they're charging most of it to the tenant, then that's not right. Unless they really did horrific damage. And so I will ask them, so how much of this move out expense is yours? And how much, you know, you may not be rep may not show up on their on their complaint, but you still have the right to ask, okay, how much did you charge yourself? Because this is your property, you've already written it off, you've already gotten depreciation on it, and now you're going to turn around and write off the expenses as well. This is a smoking deal for you. How much is your expenses? All right, let's thank our instructors. Please remember to turn in your evaluations. <laughs>